0: Hey everybody, uh, my name's Christopher Hawthorne. I, I'm sort of informally in the role of moderator this evening. I was racing other, over here from another meeting and really hoping to get out of the suit and that did not happen. So um, it's really a pleasure to be here. One of the, I teach at Occidental College. Anybody from Oxy in, in the house? All right, at least one representative, fantastic. And uh, in my old life as the architecture critic at the LA Times, um, uh, started a public event series that uh, where we had one of our first uh, public events here talking about the future of the L.A. River which included a walking tour of Bowtie um, that Julia and Sean Woods were really instrumental in, um, in helping organize and I'm always inspired when I come to events in this space whether they're Public events of this kind or informal conversations. This has been, I think, become a, a sort of nexus of really fascinating and thoughtful, more to the point, conversations about the future of these landscapes that surround us. They're complicated histories, and I think this um, uh, this latest project is just absolutely in the same in the same vein. Um, and so, as as we at the city on the city side think about the future of the G two parcel, just downriver from Bowtie. Um, I've both been really inspired by what, what state parks has done um, and have really thought about all of these conversations as informing what we do. So it, it, I'll be moderating, but mostly I'm here to listen to these stories and, and uh, these thoughts about, about how to think about the complicated histories of these landscapes. I will say from my office, the point of view of my office, I'm really interested in the larger question of of memory and how we apply a sort of more nuanced conversation about memory to these projects and how which and the question of which stories we surface, whose narratives we pay attention to, who is helpful in shaping. These projects, aside from the kind of official histories that we too often rely on, um, is something that I'm trying to bring to the conversation on the city side. And I've learned a huge amount and continue to to learn a huge amount from the conversations that have happened here. And I look forward to this event being uh, more of the same. So um, uh, just a quick note about format. We're going to hear some clips from the podcast. We're going to hear three of them, four if we have time, but at least three. And that will sort of, I'm hoping, be a kind of jumping off point for the conversation. So we'll hear a clip and then we'll have a conversation about some of the themes that are sort of connected to that clip. And then we'll hear a second one and a third one, Um, I think taking us across the range of ideas and subjects that are at the heart of the podcast and at the heart of the project as a whole, including the great photography. Um, and so I encourage, as Julia did, any of you who haven't listened to the podcast yet or seen the project um, to, um, to check out that part of it. This will be just a small taste of all the information, all the stories um, that are there. So let's hear the, let's hear the first clip.
1: Bear and I are standing at the edge of a large, empty lot. To our right is the L.A. River. To our left, train tracks. The freeway buzzes behind us. Back in the 70s. This bowtie parcel was a bustling rail depot known as Taylor Yard, a place where Southern Pacific diesel trains came from throughout Southern California for maintenance and repairs. We're waiting for one of the men who used to work here. He hasn't been back here in 25 years. I
0: traveled that road thousands of times, but there was buildings all the way down and. and, and the the service track and everything. Now everything is just open.
1: It's open, as in none of the buildings he remembers are here anymore. But during Taylor Yard's glory days in the 70s and 80s, this 18-acre parcel of land was covered by a complex network of train tracks, roads, large and echoey repair shops, and office buildings.
0: So, um... One thing Julie handed me as I was coming in uh, was a a potential property development scheme for Bowtie. This dates from, what, the late 90s? So this reads, if you can see it, LA Media Tech Center at Taylor Yard, and it shows the entire site built out absolutely to the gills. so another part of this story is the roads not taken some of which we can be <laughs> thankful for um and and just to clarify the state you know the bow ties the state parks parcel the city bought the g2 parcel last year for about 60 million dollars and as connected to that clip there will be some significant remediation required before it's fully open to the public but we're thinking about how to get public access sooner to the parts of the site that make that possible but um, Helen, if you don't mind, maybe we can start with you. Uh, as someone who grew up in the neighborhood, I'm, I'm curious about your own personal history with the site and the river and sort of the role that it played during the period when you were growing up. And I'm, sp- I'm particularly curious not only how you and your family sort of used those landscapes, but the extent to which there was a conversation about this kind of thing happening or what the fate of these, um, of these pieces of land uh, along the river might be. I think we're gonna share this mic. <laughs>
2: Good evening, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I have had the pleasure of growing up in this neighborhood Frogtown a few blocks from here and uh, I have fond memories of growing up with my sister playing the LA River where the bowtie parcel was just kind of the other side Um, if one could imagine just like there wasn't actually a fence um, that blocked the that defined the river path until just about a decade ago Um, the path wasn't improved so it was just kind of an extended backyard uh, for me during my childhood and I actually remember playing in the LA River and looking on the other side and thinking, where is that, what is that, what's there? Um, but I also went to middle school at Washington Irving Middle School, which is not too far from the site. It's a local middle school, LUSD, um, for kind of the community. And I remember driving by or walking to school on Fletcher Drive and looking over and always seeing it as a, a spot where there was no activity. So it's been fascinating with the support of Julia, an activist, to actually see this spot as an area with potential. Um, and I think that was something that I've actually never really experienced as a, a child, just seeing these forgotten spots um, as places that were uh, not looked at, uh, not thought of, and just a place for me and my sister to do whatever we wanted. So I would say from a native Frogtown. town, Perspective and as someone who runs a nonprofit committed to working in lower income neighborhoods, that as we figure out how to formalize places like the bow tie parcel, how can you actually capture all those informal uses? And I think that is what Rex did really well, which is capturing the stories of the bowtie parcel as a canvas for artists, even if they may be seen as graffiti, as a home for people who don't actually have the ability to be housed in a physical structure, so their home is actually the bowtie parcel. So that's something that I'm curious to think about what is that intersection between preserving open space and green space in a landscape of Los Angeles where we have an affordable housing crisis, a homelessness crisis, Uh, and what is that intersection, what does that look like?
0: And that's a terrific segue to the project, and I'm curious, Rex, if you can just tell us a little bit about how you structured the research before you began producing the podcast and the the photography, um, how you... Analyze the site in terms of its history and the stories and the levels of, of narrative that you wanted to unearth. How did you approach the project when you started?
1: So at first it, it felt like a big creative challenge, right? Like how do you tell stories about a place that seems like it doesn't get much use and it's, you know, in, in some state of disrepair, right? Um, but Bear and I typically tell stories about, about people and how they feel about a place, about an issue. And so we really felt like we needed to start meeting folks who cared about this place, right? But when you go to the bow tie, you realize it's, it's empty half the time, right? Um, so the, the project went through many different phases. Initially, we were thinking we may want to talk to the folks from Frogtown, from Cypress Park, from all the neighboring areas, from Atwater. Um, and then quickly, we realized that the one neighborhood that had most um, at stake, that would have most at stake when this became a park, or if any of it was to become developed for you know a housing project, or what have you, some big box development, would be what we call the Pocket. And that's a little uh, five block little area on the other side of the 2 Freeway, and between Fletcher Drive and the 2. Uh, so then we, we shifted over to looking at just the Pocket. and. Um, and then we saw that, that for a lot of folks in that neighborhood, which is a working class, still mostly a working class neighborhood that's rapidly gentrifying right now, that people associated the bow tie with Taylor Yard and with the gangs in the 80s and 90s. So if they were afraid to go there. They needed to like go under the bridge in order to get there. And it was sketchy. So. So, you know, we, we wanted, we, we were pretty sure just having been at the bow tie that it had to have some positive associations for people that it represented, that some people needed to care about this place. And so uh, we ended up spending a lot more time at the bow tie itself. And one of the main groups of, of folks that we ended up spending a lot of time with and, and really getting a sense of how they felt about the bow tie were, were homeless folks or folks who were living along the river.
0: And how willing or unwilling were people to talk? Did it require some sort of coaxing in terms of t- getting those stories out? Because I think one of the themes is the kind of degree to which, I mean, in a larger sense, those of you who know the history of the LA River will know this, the, one of the byproducts of channelization when we wrapped the river in concrete is a flood control measure as we turned what had been a really kind of a lifeblood for the city. You know, the LA River provided the drinking water for the Los Angeles until 1913, until we built the aqueduct. It's why the you know the the pueblos where it is. It's why we founded the city where we did. Um, and a byproduct of, of wrapping it in concrete was to turn was almost paradoxically to make it invisible. Even though it was an incredibly ambitious sort of expression of infrastructural muscle. Whatever we think about it now, it did sort of cut it off from the neighborhoods and and made a lot of the spaces like the bow tie sort of. Um, uh, places where kind of informal slash illegal, I- illicit, or uh, uh, across that whole spectrum of activities were happening. Um, and, and that and that value, and trying to keep that history in mind as we plot the future of the site is something that's really important. So I'm just curious how, how willing people were to talk and how much you kind of had to coax they, out uh, of them. You
1: know, it, it was great that we had a year to get to know people and to to really tell their stories a bit over time. Uh, at first, it wasn't easy because even we ourselves couldn't really define what it is that was drawing us to, to tell the story about the bow tie, right? Um, and and the bow tie is, is interesting in that it's, it's you know, you mentioned the river, the channelization, the freeway, the bridges, the the rail line, G2. It's, it's an island, right, but it's also kind of a, Neutral ground for a lot of people Um, and and it represents different things to different people Um, And it's full of life obviously It took us getting to know it better and developing some sort of emotional connection to it to be able to communicate that to other people And then we started finding wow this this place really is unique and it's also very representative of of LA as a whole It's it's the quintessential LA story in a way So I think we got to that that definition of the bow tie or that understanding of the bow tie about halfway halfway uh, about six months ago and then from that point on it all started making sense and we started meeting the folks that could most communicate that to us can you
0: expand on that idea a little bit what is it that makes it the quintessential landscape or what way does it strike you as being quintessential
1: yeah well we uh, you know at clock shop we or the folks at Clock Shop are always using the term post-industrial site, and I've been throwing it around myself until someone said, well, what is that, right? And you know, it the bow tie represents, it, it still kind of shows the scars of its of its history. Um, it's not been totally cleaned up. Um, and it's, it's remained in this state of like, uh, you know, the debris and the trash and the you know the the stuff that's left behind can be preserved for longer than you might find in other parts of the city um and it's at the very center of of a lot of urban development but you could say that about most anywhere in la right so um it's right next to the river right so regardless of or Due to the river revitalization efforts, there's bound to be change along the Bow Tie as well, um, and it's and it's a place where we have already seen just in 40, 50 years how quickly um, we're able to either forget or to to build over history here. It, it represents the, I think, L.A.'s um, ability or Drive to reinvent itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, for all those reasons, I think of it as you know, it's the rare open space, unpoliced space in LA of its size, but yeah. it's also the quintessential LA space in that it, it, all these issues kind of come to a head in this small piece of land.
0: So, Cat, the, in the landscape world, certainly we're many decades into kind of thinking about post-industrial projects and, you, you know, probably I'm thinking what, whatever the earliest ones are, Gasworks Park maybe in Seattle, going back to the 60s and 70s, really. So in that context and then and given the, the intense connections to the, you know, the local histories of these neighborhoods, from a design point of view, how do you begin to grapple with, you know, which of those layers get surfaced and how you... Um, I think how you approach that from a design point of view and with one wrinkle that I'll also add, which is that some of the funding for remediation and improvement and revitalization along the river, particularly that which comes from the federal government, is connected to a very specific set of restoration goals, which may be or can be at odds with an idea of letting a kind of industrial or post-industrial landscape sit in, in the condition that it's been in for many decades. So. From a design point of view, how do you begin to grapple with or balance those those conflicting goals?
3: What a great question, right? <clears throat> if I had the total answer to it, I think that we could all just go home. Um, so I would say that it's about, again, realizing the different... I mean, we've been talking about it in terms of layers, and I think that that's a very accurate representation. I think that when you go to the bow tie, you see those layers. And I think it's about figuring out how to... Keep those layers active. Um, And almost from a design point of view, it's less about thinking, at least to me, it's less about thinking of the end product. What are we going to make? What are we going to design? And it's more about, what am I going to feel when I'm in that space? When I'm done designing that space, how am I going to feel? How are you going to feel? How is everyone going to feel when we're walking through it, biking through it, picnicking in it, sleeping in it overnight, whatever it is that we're doing? So for me, it's less about, well, it's going to have this native plant in it. And it's going to have this recreational opportunity. And it's more about kind of the, the character and the feel that you want to keep on site. And so I don't really think that in the case of the bow tie, it has to be seen as an or. Do we want uh, you know, ecological restoration? Or do we want to realize that post-industrial industrial landscape and allow that to still be seen and, and celebrated? Or do we want you know, an active recreation facility? Or do we want to put up homeless shelters or commercial development? Oh. <laughs> I think it can be a really nice blend of a lot of those things. Mm. And I think it's about, again, not, because we do it so often in LA, I think that sites like this oft, offer the opportunity to not erase every single layer of the past, okay. and not just put up the next thing and say, oh, and this is you know, 2018 on, or whenever we develop the park, 2028 20, on. Um, I think it's definitely about figuring out how those uses can be compatible. I mean, you mentioned Gasworks Park, and that to me is a great example of where it's not an an or, it's an and. You're you know on you're on the sound, you're you're looking out over the water, and you're you're seeing these crazy rusty structures all around you. I think that we can have that exact same kind of merger on the Bow Tie, but what I really think needs to again be at the heart of figuring out the design is. What do we want to feel in that space afterwards? And I think that what, what draws a lot of people to the bow tie parcel right now and what has historically done so is that sense of that it is a blank canvas. It's a it's an open space in LA that allows you to, to be flexible and to have your experience the way that you want to have it, that it's not a pre-prescribed experience. So the one thing that I would say is that it, the design needs to be something that is flexible in itself to where even if it does have active recreation fields, even if it does have um, a trail going through it, even if it does have native plants, even if it does have old structures that kind of harken to that that post-industrial landscape, it has to have that flexibility of where you're able to go and feel as though you can still explore and that you can still invent your own open space because that's what the beauty of the bow tie is right now is that you have to use your imagination Right, and you get right. to use your imagination in a play that is overly in a place that's overly built like Los Angeles.
0: And you're right that the scale of boat, so bow so bowtie plus G2 plus the other state park is more than 100 acres, yeah. which is remarkable scale. On the other hand, I'm curious for Helen if you have thoughts about this too. It's, I'm hard pressed to think of places in Los Angeles where in a more official capacity, as opposed to a space that can be discovered by the public in the way this one, in, in sort of untouched and official capacity for a long time, where we've actually struck that balance. Are there projects that you've worked on or that, are, that you've looked at, either of you, where, and, and I'm thinking of your office in particular, where you're so careful about trying to unearth some of the histories that are inherent in a project and, and, and have, have them work from that point of view. Uh, but to a certain extent, this is such a, I mean, we have tended so poorly to these kinds of complicated uh, cultural histories, particularly, excuse me, particularly when they're really fraught. So I'm wondering, either of you, from a design point of view, are there examples where we've been able to let several of those layers sort of exist um, once we've had a sort of official treatment of a space, if that makes sense?
2: I think to get to your um, question, I would say that what's really interesting is that Rex's project in some ways tries to uncover the history. And there's this term in in community development called placemaking. And some people have said, rather than make a place, why don't we place keep? Placekeeping, um, and I think that's something that's interesting, but there isn't in this bowtie parcel, but I would say that there isn't that natural um, constituency of advocates that are going to show up to a community meeting 800 strong, which is what's happening in Venice right now, on right. a proposed uh, bridge housing, and what Julia and Clock Shop is trying to do is, um, you know, use the combination of cultural programming, tactical urbanism, art to make it something that it could eventually be. Can it be a place for camping out? I, I was one of, I participated in the first camp out at Bowtie Parcel, and that made me think, could this actually be a camping spot? So I think there's this tension between how do you actually kind of make a place new based on the hopes and dreams and values of people, and how do you also keep that history? And I, I don't have a good example of a project, but I would say that for a Parcel so big, it's it's a place that's more than a place for the immediate northeast neighborhood in the community, it's it's gonna be a regional destination. So what is that balance that, you know, as people have fears of what people call green gentrification, there's an op-ed article in the LA Times about how any investment in a park space like that could have the um, what is that that effect in New York I, uh, Highline, yeah, the Highline high effect, effect yeah, yeah. I think it's really balancing out that whatever you do in the bow tie parcel, whether you like it or not, is going to have impacts to the properties outside adjacent the neighborhoods. Um, and I think that's a kind of a holistic perspective on just development and how the city grows and how you can't develop one property without thinking about another. So I think my response to your question, Chris, is that I think that. However we decide to develop the bow tie parcel, um, knowing that it is owned and is gonna be operated by California State Park, um, I'm hoping that other players like the city is thinking about uh, what does that mean for just the neighborhood surrounding it and to think of it holistically and not just a one project at a time, but thinking what does it look like in a regional sense and a community development sense.
0: Yeah. Anything you want to add to that, Kat? No,
3: I was just going to, I mean, when I was going through my my hamster wheel as well, saying, oh, is there a project? And I really feel like within Los Angeles, it's sad to say that the only way that we really, we start to scratch the surface surface of that, and it's through interpretive signage. And that's really, yeah. that's about, it. it's through that as well as inspiration that leads to park design or um, some sort of a design where it's, oh, you know, I looked back at the history of this space and that helped me to be inspired about how it is that I'm designing it in the in the future. Maybe it is that you incorporate some of that plant material that's there. Maybe it is that, but oftentimes in terms of cultural history or those kind of remnants, um, I do have to say that's that's less brought mm. along. And I, I think that it's because there's so much history to a place like Los Angeles. So then it's well, whose history are we telling? Right, right. And that's I think the the complicated thing that we have at play on the bow tie. And again to, to Helen's point, I love that you bring up the fact that it is going to be this regional destination because that's part of the complexity behind figuring out how to design a space like that. Thinking about designing a space like G2, how does all of the hundred acres add up together? Because you know I went to the G2 community meeting last week or two weeks ago, whenever that was, and there was a lot of there were a lot of folks from the community there asking for soccer fields, asking for active recreation. Whereas then if you think about what it is that draws tourists to a site, it's not going to be to play a game of soccer along the LA River. It's going to be seeing a sculpture park or going to a museum about the water, something like that. So you have kind of this juxtaposition. And you have to be juggling both of those of saying, OK, well, we want to you know support tourism and allow for that to happen in LA and embrace that and invite you know, people from outside to a space like this to feel welcome. But at the same time, we don't want to then be designing it in a way that displaces and makes the people who are living around this site on a daily basis feel unwelcome there.
0: Right. I really do think this is the challenge of the moment in LA in all in all kinds of ways. And it does start with an effort, a kind of journalistic effort, the, the kind that you've made to uncover the stories. And thinking back to my own, you know, my old life as an architecture critic, one of the first pieces I wrote kind of grappling with history in this way was the about the fight over the ambassador hotel site on Wilshire Boulevard and I think what we were lacking was some kind of collection of all of those voices which is to say not just on the site itself um, but also in the neighborhood and that was a very complex preservation battle because it was not, although Donald Trump did own that site for a while and wanted to build the tallest building on the west coast there. At the time that um, the uh, question was coming to a head, it was LAUSD property, they wanted to build a school. It was a part of the city that was really underserved by public school campuses. Kids were getting bussed you know, as far away as the valley. Um, and there wasn't a kind of repository of these different stories and thinking about whatever we build there has to serve not not just these different histories, but these different communities. and. Um, and so we haven't always in Los Angeles done a particularly good job at, at, um, at unearthing those levels and the, those kinds of stories before we, you know, have a more public conversation or come to some kind of decision about what our design strategy is. So maybe we'll um, move to the second uh, podcast clip, if you don't mind.
1: Not everyone is as optimistic about the Bowtie's future. One of Melissa's neighbors is Carlos Trujillo, whose house is visible if you peek over her cinder block backyard fence. They haven't yet met each other. Carlos doesn't care much for the bow tie or the river. He still associates it with its fenced in, abandoned
0: history. You know, like there's nothing there but like old shoes and like trash.
1: He's heard about the plan to turn the lot into a park. He's also heard about new developments nearby that will bring a lot more people and traffic to this area. Seemingly overnight, his childhood neighborhood has become a hip place to be. And the newcomers, Carlos says, are in denial about the public safety issues that still
0: linger here. There's a lot of things going on, a lot of action going on. But, you know, you still understand kind of when things, when you start seeing tagging appear on walls, you understand that, okay, something's heating up here, something's going on.
1: He's been seeing more gang-related graffiti, and it worries him. A lot of the Pockets residents told us they've noticed the graffiti. In fact, most of the longtime residents still avoid the bow tie. They see the old rail yard as a symbol of LA's blight, a place where people drink and do drugs, and where gangsters still cause trouble. Their memories are too strong. The gang-related tags bring those feelings back.
0: So uh, Rox, I'm really curious about this. That clip is part of a larger episode, uh, podcast episode looking at that entire neighborhood. And maybe you can explain sort of what the rest of the episode gets to for those who haven't heard it, in terms of the attitude of that part of the community toward the site, and also the dangers, I think, that are suggested by that clip of sort of romanticizing, you know, the way that we can, from outside the neighborhood, romanticize what has been, for many people, a difficult and troubled history in connection to that space. So you could just describe a little bit of what you heard along sure. those lines.
1: I mean, what, what people shared with us was collective trauma, (laughs) you know? I mean, people think of the Bowtie as a place where the gangsters that that were involved in a drive-by shooting that killed their kid hung out. You know, it's that simple, and so they don't wanna go near it. Um, We talked to a number of folks, Filipino, Latino families, who, you know, felt unsafe in the pocket, but they couldn't afford to move elsewhere. Um, and but they kept it to the neighborhood. They wouldn't dare go to, to the bow tie, and why would you? It was fenced up and, and like Carlos says, it, you know, it was full of old shoes and trash. I mean, to him, that's, um, you know, and graffiti and gang graffiti and gang tags, which it is. So the, the episode really was an effort to to see kind of like get a sense of how the folks who are living closest to this place, how they've seen it over the years, and how the newcomers, right, who are drawn by the lower real estate prices, they, they don't have those associations and they can they can look past the graffiti. They um, they can see it as as a deal and a new life and you know that's also a part of, of how neighborhoods change, right? I mean we Early on we, we knew this project was gonna get at gentrification and, and green gentrification, right? But we wanted to, to, to try to be subtle and to try to look at it across cultural and, and class differences. Because I think there's, there's a lot of subtlety there that we don't get at when we, when we discuss gentrification in the city.
0: And Helen, I think you're right to mention uh, the High Line. I think in many ways we're across the country in, in thinking about projects like this in a post-High Line moment, which is to say, realizing f- um, in a very direct way that a project can be too successful in terms of its design, and certainly no one would take issue with the design strategy of the High Line, but the sort of effects in that, of that neighborhood. Um, have made people sort of revisit the decision-making that led to that project. And um, when I think about projects around the country, one in particular, the 11th Street Bridge Project over the Anacostia River in Washington, uh, the Beltline Project in Atlanta to a degree, um, which is an attempt to take an old rail loop around Atlanta and turn it into a collection of housing, open space, and transit. Both those projects have been very much um, shaped by this kind of post-Highland moment of trying to build in some protections for the community. Um, 11th Street Bridge Park project in D.C. in particular is very ambitious about its design, but also has a lot Mm -hmm. of community benefits agreements and um, and employment agreements, um, affordable housing, funds built in. Um, So, I think a lot of us are looking at those projects around the country for what lessons we might learn for what's happening in LA. But I'm curious how that plays out in the neighborhood. Are your parents still in the house where you grew up? And so, on this side, what was, you know, I'm curious how the same questions sort of play out Mm -hmm. in terms of how shifting sense, particularly in terms of newcomers and how people not just see the neighborhood, but see the potential of a site like Bowtie or all of the Taylor Yard.
2: What's really interesting was when I was growing up, I had to climb over under fences to get to the LA River. Um, And kind of that perspective has like switched completely. And uh, the reason that I would say the Bowtie Parcel was kind of this scary place was because FTR, the local gang in Frogtown, um, if they crawled out of their immediate territory, they'll go over there. MS-13 was actually a huge gang that actually consumed all of Washington Irving Middle School. So when I went to school or went home, That was the activity, and it wasn't until the federal gang injunction that really minimized the impact of MS-13 at Waterhead, Tunerville. So it's completely understandable why a space that was kind of not officially governed by any one gang was the place where all the gang activity was. And um, even my parents, who still live here today, they live, um, they're shocked at why people will actually want to come to live in the neighborhood. Um, It's interesting that my neighbors growing up was uh, industrial factories um, of so many different kinds from from a bakery to airplane making parks to pickle factories um, and it was a lot of noise and so now my parents are like this is great there's not lots of uh, industrial noise happening and I just have you know one artist that bought both sides of the properties and that's my parents' neighbor. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting to see it from their perspective, which is why are people interested in living in in a neighborhood like this? And I think my response is different. I I call myself a homegrown gentrifier. I have the privilege of an education. Um, Even though my parents are working class immigrants, I'm now privileged because i got to go to college, um, I can actually afford to enjoy places like wax paper and um, enjoy all the new amenities, whereas if I brought my parents to wax paper, as much as their sandwiches are delicious, they would just be in shock. Um, So there's always going to be that kind of difference between uh, someone like my parents who bought in this neighborhood because it was affordable and because it was a residential property on commercial land to someone like myself, who kind of, you know, even if I wasn't born in Frogtown, everywhere I lived outside of Frogtown was actually very similar to Frogtown because I was drawn to this aesthetic. I, I actually gravitated towards uh, gentrifying neighborhoods in DC and Philly and Boston because I like that kind of raw edge, the, the the change, the grittiness, the the welcoming nature of people who had very diverse backgrounds. So um, I would say that. It is, the LA is in this kind of junction point, not just with the bowtie parcel, but with properties throughout Los Angeles um, as we're trying to figure out what is good public policy. And maybe I'll end by saying that there is no good solution to the you know green gentrification. There's been so many different policy initiatives. There's a the reform of Costa-Hawkins and Prop 10, which I encourage everyone to read up and understand. There are initiatives like EIFDs, enhanced infrastructure finance districts, that's supposed to capture the the value of the increase in property to invest in open space and affordable housing. Um, There are a lot of land trusts and community development corporations, but none of that individually is gonna kind of really make that dent in the reality that when there is investment and there should be investment for good roads and good schools and good housing and good amenities, that there is always gonna be this ripple impact. so I would say that um, as my parents get to kind of continue being in Frogtown because they have the benefit of being a property owner um, that there are also people who decide they they, they want to leave uh, because they want to cash out and um, I think the toughest is for people who have no choice but to leave where they would rather stay but you know their rents have increased their properties are getting sold and I think that is that uh, that question then you know I Folks in public policy and architecture and design, community development are trying to figure out. And I think conversations like this help us think about uh, how can you have really good design, but also design that's inclusive and a project that's holistic.
0: And if your parents were here and we asked them what should happen with Bowtie, what do you think they would say?
2: Hmm. I'm gonna have to go home and ask my parents (laughs) after this. over the years, I've brought my parents to different places, like Vista Hermosa Park, the new state park that opened up. And um, they just find it very interesting. And they, um, they are surprised that uh, people will go venture out to visit a place. Because I think for someone like my parents, they had no choice and they just stuck with what was around them and what was immediate. So um, that notion of creating this destination and going to it, it was not something that um, I grew up with or, or what my parents were used to and it could be a very specific you know, Chinese immigration perspective. Um, but I think the, the, common, the common reaction when I try to take them to tour LA's newest uh, development is, that's interesting, why would people go all the way over there to visit that? (laughs) They actually just really like um, walking along the LA River and going and just being kind of local.
0: Hmm. So this is a question for all of you about, sort of connected to that, I wonder if your parents um, are active, do they go to community meetings or or would they show up to sort of offer their thoughts or would the city sort of have to, find them where they are. So I'm thinking very, you know, in a lot of projects, particularly uh, here along the river, but everywhere, how to rethink the community engagement process. And, you know, I think, particularly when it comes to housing, we've heard, um, you know, over the years, very strongly from those who are housing secure, particularly homeowners, and not as much from those who are housing insecure, for example, or those who want to Um, um, be able to afford something but can't, and and it's very difficult to structure conversations that can be open to all of those perspectives. So I'm curious from all of your points of view, given your knowledge of this particular site, if if the goal for Bowtie or for G2 for that matter is to get a a really representative sample, um, and, and this is really directed probably first to you, given that you've already gone out and tried to find that, what would your what were your thoughts or advice be about how to kind of structure that process to get people like your parents, but also the people that you spent a whole year trying to find and gather all of those points of view as we try to decide you know a design strategy that will work?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I wish there was one way to do it, uh, community engagement that is I, I feel like that's very much my mission as a, as a storyteller, mm-hmm. as a journalist, is to get people to care, and it, it's upsetting when you see how difficult that can be, right? I mean, in in L.A., we obviously have the the challenge of people being very busy and and having to travel long distances and the high cost of living and language and culture. But all that said, I think community engagement just takes time and it takes genuinely caring about something and it takes trying to reach people in multiple ways. You know, I I was looking through my mail this morning and I saw I'm, I'm starting to get all the flyers for all the political campaigns, and I'm like, mm. we still run these campaigns as if like we're stuck in the 80s, you know, like, I, I don't believe that is how you reach people these days. And yet, you know, actually, uh, when we started on this project, we printed out a brochure and we started going door to door. It turned out that was one tenth of the effort we needed to do to really get people to even talk to us, right. So I think it, um, you know, it takes it takes partnerships. It takes showing that you really care, and it doesn't necessarily take kind of like visioning meetings. You know, where you like look at a map and you put down you know what it is that you want on this site or that site. Right. Um, but you know, fortunately, uh, around this area, we have a lot of organizations and a lot of stakeholders who who care about about the river and who care about the bow tie. And I think coming up with, with a plan that is really in the long run, you know, that looks at the next two, five, ten years, mm-hmm. it engages folks. Starting with perhaps this, this podcast and this project. I right. mean that was one of the initial goals of this project mm-hmm. is to start talking to folks and
3: mm-hmm. start getting them involved.
0: Thank you. Other thoughts on that question?
3: Sure. I, well, my first thing I was going to say, we need to hire Rux <laughs> to lead the effort because you did a great job of capturing a lot of different perspectives. But what I would say is that it really, it can't be a silver bullet approach. And it has to really be this very complex, if we want authentic community engagement, it needs to be very complex and multi-layered to get at all of those different histories, the different types of people, um, the, the locals, the non-locals, all of that. I think that right now, um, when we talk about community engagement, we kind of think about, again, the workshop. Okay, you send out an email, whoever it is that is, you know, having the parcel of property or doing the next big big thing. You send out an email to people, you tell them all to come to a church at night and you stick post-its on on something right, and right. there's your community engagement. Check the box. You know, it was when I moved to Cypress Park and I started becoming active in the neighborhood council that I really realized that there was a whole other world beyond email, and there was a whole other world beyond just these, you know, these these couple um, meetings. The the first project actually that I worked on when I started working at Studio MLA, Mueller and Associates, back in the day. Um, was the Northeast Los Angeles Placemaking Plan. And it was, and I worked with it with Helen, so you can talk about this too, but that was hugely eye-opening for me because essentially what the NELA Placemaking Plan was looking to do was capture the community's input on not only what they thought was working well in their community right now that they wanted to keep, but secondly, what do you maybe want to improve? So it was us trying to go out and within five neighborhoods around the LA River capture that voice so that we could give it to City Hall and say, here it is. Here's what literally the people in Lincoln Heights, Cypress Park, Glassell Park, Frogtown, Atwater Village, what those folks want. And it was through running a series of tons of those kind of come to the church for a community meeting meetings that I realized that we still were, were only hitting this small surface of folks that actually lived within those communities. And so to realize that you know, to, to then move to Cypress Park and realize, oh yeah, it's because most of the residents that I'm living amongst right now, they don't have an email address. You know, when we when we go to their door and we tell them that a development is happening or something like that, we ask them to sign up on an email list and they say, I don't have a computer or I don't have an email. So that reality really started sticking with me and I realized just that you have to do that kind of multi-layered approach. Sure, the workshop thing is great for certain people then we have to really do kind of this door-to-door outreach. We have to find those champions that are already within the community that are leaders already, tap into them and ask them, how is it that you reach out to your constituents? How is it that you gain support for something or gain their feedback for something? Mm -hmm. So it adds a lot of complexity, but if we really want to think about looking at community engagement authentically, it has to have those layers. It has to be like that.
0: I think also recognizing the... uh... Institutions, organizations that have been in communities and have those roots, and you know, another example from the DC project is that instead of starting a new nonprofit for this very ambitious design project for the park across the river, they found an existing nonprofit on the east side of the river where the impacts would be strongest, and partner with them, and took advantage of those relationships which had been built over uh, many years, and there was a certain level of trust, uh, kind of about the authenticity of the feedback that they would be. Um, getting. I also think, from a design point of view, it's become clear and clear to me that we have to try to move away from the idea that we'll have one solution that will be, that will be fixed for all time. And there's a real bias toward that sort of approach in the architecture design world, particularly in the architectural press, that there is one set of renderings that we raise money with, that we suggest, that we publish, and suggest is the the final. You know. Design um, and that will be fixed for all time, and I think we have to be, from the city point of view, much more willing to say we're going to try various solutions, and we're going to try some temporary solutions, and we're going to test them against the community's expectation or desire for the site, and we're going to adjust accordingly. Um, and that hasn't that hasn't always been, uh, you know, particularly popular approach, particularly when you're. The way procurement and contracts, all these things work, you know, it's difficult to move away from that.
2: I want to add two yeah. quick things, which is that the desire by folks who do community engagement to have consensus-based decision-making, also it really undermines the reality that everyone's going to have a different perspective. Um, so uh, I think that is a right. very solid point. And one thing that I think most people forget as well is that there are a type of people who understand the processes and the laws and the rules and the norms, um, and to be able to just ask that question without informing someone about all that context that somebody who may be more educated, may be more informed and more experienced, and more active is an unfair premise. So there is this co- whole notion of authentic community engagement that should also include meaningful education and the conversations and kind of being able to provide the whole context and not just ask that one question and expect someone to choose a or B or other. Um, and I think the other kind of perspective that I want to also add is that for, for a lot of people, people like my parents, meeting people where they're at. Um, so the notion of you know sending out an email and coming to a church or a school, uh, I think one of the more successful efforts that I've seen that lots of folks have picked up is having these gatherings informally, as interviews, as conversations, where people already gather. And uh, one example was after the NILA placemaking effort, um, with the support of Julia and David, uh, my organization ended up putting on an effort called Fratero the Frog Town, which was an effort to do something very similar to what Kat described, but in a way to shape land use policy. And uh, it was a very contentious process. There was a lot of fear of change, of development, and. Uh, I would say that one of the, I would say we had held several workshops and the ones that were most successful were the ones that uh, took place in unofficial places people have never expected a meeting to take place. One example was someone who had a taco shop on his patio. Lalo's Tacos, um, and the fact that he opened up his taco shop in the sidewalk in front of his house to host that meeting meant that lots of people came because they are like, oh, this is where I get tacos on a Thursday night. Um, what's going on here? And I would say that the conversation there was probably the most authentic uh, because it was taking place at a location where people were already gathered. So uh, that's also something to think about um, as we try to transform the typical processes for engagement.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. So maybe let's hear the last uh, clip because I think it opens up another potential avenue of conversation about the future of these sites.
4: I'm not saying, oh, I want I want to make it okay for like homeless people to
0: live here because you know obviously it's a problem, you know, for the city and for themselves, you know. But like in a way, for making it like is one of the reasons homeless people come here too. Like I'm gonna just be honest, a lot of people do drugs, you know can't be drinking out in public either. You know, people like to come out here and take you have a beer. And I'm not saying, oh, a place where people could go and do their shit, obviously, we don't want that. But a
4: place where, well, oh, it's all right, you know, it's not, a, not that it's all right, but there, there's a certain level to it, you know.
1: That's exactly but what the like project's peop- about, Mike. Yeah. It's about this place as a space, an open space for everybody, for mm-hmm. so whether it's like you wanna work out, like a woman that we know from, mm-hmm. this right there, she comes here to work or if you want to drink in peace, this Mm. is your spot, or if you need to camp out or whatever. The bow tie has become that open, unpoliced space for some, but this is temporary. In the not too distant future, once the site is cleaned up and landscaped, that might change.
0: It's one of those places in LA that are probably going to disappear. And it sucks because it's like one of the the few places, I'm not going to say the last place, it's one of the few places in LA that are probably like this now where it's like, like it's, it's peaceful. So to get back to something that you touched on earlier about housing and the, the number of, um, you know, it's not just open space that we're lacking across the city. It's also, you know, responses to the homelessness and, and housing affordability crisis. Uh, and you were talking about the potential for all kinds of different, different kinds of activities to happen. So I'm curious from all of your perspectives, um, just starting with bow ties. is this a site that's, that's big enough or given the place that it's operated in in the community to accommodate housing, for example, in addition to open space? Or is that a conversation that's likely to be too contentious? What do you think?
2: Um, I think it is it would be a really contentious space. Uh, the idea that a state park would build housing on their property. Um, so that's just a technicality. Sure. Um, but for a parcel so big it can hold, it could be anything. So I think it's more what is the willingness of not just the community, but political willingness, um, financial willingness uh, to be able to do something that's different. Um, and that concept of really mixed use, mixed income, uh, mixed programming is a really hard balance to achieve. So mm-hmm. I don't really know the question, question to the, the answer to that question, but I, I like to think that uh, it is such a big space, and after we figure out how to clean it up, which will be lots of money and lots of time, um, it is one of the largest, you know, undeveloped spots along the LA River that's next to transit, that's near downtown. Um, but then there's a question of can you kind of bring all that infrastructure there. Mm. Um, so I, I think it's gonna have to take lots and lots of meaningful community engagement efforts um, and that conversation by people like yourself in terms of what is, uh, you know, what is a city willing to invest, what is a state willing to do on a property that they own that has
3: been traditionally thought of as open space. Do
0: you have thoughts on that either of you?
3: Yeah and I think that, I think Helen you are right in the sense that um, I don't think that either Bowtie or G2 Will feasibly ever support like housing in in the sense of a large development, but I guess where where my brain goes is um, back to what you said, which which is kind of about the succession of a site. Does it have to be on ribbon cutting, the be all end all? I think that we need to think about our open spaces. We need to think about the way that we approach design as something that evolves over time. So um, I will go back to you know wearing my former. Uh, the head of uh, being on the Cypress Park Land Use Planning Committee, and one of the crazy things that came out of, one of, one of the crazy ideas that came out of our, um, one of our meetings was we were talking about homelessness, and we were talking about specifically the RV population that has, um, due to other kind of parking restrictions that have been put up in other neighborhoods, a lot of RVs are, were moving into Cypress Park. So we were kind of, you know, talking to the local police and trying to figure out, well, what is it that we can do And so we started talking about the safe park situation of where it's, can we find a flat plot of land somewhere, be it a parking lot, be it just a vacant parcel, and can we start actually parking these RVs here in a safe way? We provide them with certain amenities that are keeping their sewage from going into the streets and into the river, things like that. So we were brainstorming and um, uh, the representative from CD1 said, well, do you have any ideas of where this could be within your community? And the council said, the G2 parcel. they see it as this large open space that, well, nothing else is happening on it, and if the city is looking for interim uses, why why couldn't we think about designing a park in the interim for people that never get a park? Why, why is it that we don't think about them as part of the public, What you know? And so, for me, it's, I think, thinking on that kind of a, of a strategy where it's how can we evolve that space over time? How could it, in the interim, as it's just sitting there fallow, Get some amenities and get some people off of the streets, and mm-hmm. have those kind of social services that are there, and you know restrooms that are there, and basic things that don't require a ton of investment on the part of anybody. But it, it activates that site, and it invites people to that space, and it provides a space for people to gather, which is the whole the whole point of public space in total.
0: Right, and I think maybe another version of that question is is um, and. This is maybe for you, Rex. In terms of all the people you've talked to, um, in a more in in a less formal way than convincing state parks to take on the radical notion of actually building permanent housing, which which you're right would be a, a real departure. In the interim, is it possible that, from a design point of view, to think about an approach to the site that would be whether it's housing temporarily or not, some other approach that would be. Um, welcoming to the mo- the people who have been the most intense users of the space over time, which is to a large extent been a homeless population and others in the neighborhood. Um, and I'm curious for your thoughts about, about sort of how to address the needs of those people who historically have been using the park more more intensely than anybody else.
1: Sure, I'll, I'll just say, um, you know, what, what Kat just mentioned is very much what I, what I heard from folks who mm. are living along the river is there's this open piece of land, why can't we use it, right? Um, You know, one interesting thing that I found is every single person who's currently without a home that we met along the river, easily 20, 25 folks, most of them men, all of them have a connection to the neighborhoods, all of them lived in Silver Lake and were evicted at some point or lost, all their money somehow, the 2008 crash, they're all locals. These are not folks who are like looking to see where to camp. Mm-hmm. Not that that would make it okay or not in any way, but they but are They have a deeper connection to the place. They have a deep connection to the place. And they know the bow tie when it was tailing a yard. So these are, na- these are neighbors, right? These are folks, these are the people, like as you're saying, that we're not thinking, we're not including in a future design of this park, of this site, personally. I, I spoke to, to Catman, one of the gentleman who we spent a lot of time with and he had it all figured out. I mean if the city was really seriously or the or the state looking into this, he has a whole plan that would basically be a newer version of what the city did in nineteen eighty four, right? Which was where they created the tent city right behind City Hall. And I don't know I don't remember how many homeless folks were living there at the time, but you know, Catman Told me about his plan to bring in all his porta potties and charging people 50 bucks a month and having this little you know square of land that you would keep clean and, and having um, the city you know LAPD kind of well in this case I guess would it be county would it be sheriff's office I don't know mm-hmm. you know for them a lot of the the divisions or the lines that we now see between G2 and Botine city and county and state are yeah, irrelevant yeah, they don't exactly. exist they just need yeah. a place to camp and they are getting pushed out repeatedly um, you know from one one place to the next so the bow tie is kind of an obvious choice mm. for a lot of folks.
0: So Kat I'm curious for your point of view as somebody who you, you've described your breadth of experience working in the community in these land use, you know, neighborhood council meetings, but also understanding the role that the Army Corps has played and the sort of interest that the state and the federal government have I'm wondering if this sort of more informal approach to thinking about programming and the complicated history of the site in the community, um, as it, as it you know, gets more traction, what's your sense as somebody who's also been in meetings on, you know, with the federal government, whether there's a willingness on that side to sort of entertain this notion of uh, a more complex definition of like what, what can happen perhaps on the site?
3: I think as long as we keep managing the flood mm-hmm. or floods mm-hmm. that are, you know, going to happen, then the Army Corps will be happy. Um, they, no, they are they're a tough they're a tough group, and for good reason. I mean, they are charged with the task of keeping us safe, and I think that oftentimes they get a really bad rap, and that's also in part for good reason because sometimes they don't communicate things as openly. Or, um, but really, it is that they are trying to look out for our best interest. So. I do, and maybe this is just the the pure optimist in me, I would have to think that as long as, again, we we can prove that whatever kind of design we're coming up with, whatever strategy we're proposing and wanting to implement, as long as it, still maintains flood storage capacity, and then it still meets the goals of the Arbor Study, um, since we're within that reach.
0: Right, can you talk a little bit about the Arbor Study?
3: Sure, so um, back in 2015 was when the US Army Corps of Engineers finished a report called the Arbor Study, and what they essentially did, it took them a decade to um, come up with the report, and it was their attempt to come back to LA and say, oops, sorry, we messed up your river, let's try to look at how it is that we could bring back ecological integrity. So they looked at 11 of the 51 miles, and that 11 miles is where we're at right now in the Glendale Narrows. So they modeled a bunch of different scenarios of how they could terrace the walls, they could um, put plantings on the walls, they could do different restoration on the banks. They came up with all of these different ideas, and they ended up um, proposing Alternative 20, which was the most robust restoration plan for that 11 miles. And within that, that would encapsulate about 703 acres of restoration in total within that 11 miles. So that kind of was the um, I think a big tipping point for us here in LA and for those of us in the River family who are helping to revitalize it because what that did was it was the federal government saying okay well we don't just want it to be a concrete ditch anymore either we understand that it can be Multi-purpose, that it doesn't just have to maintain flood capacity. So for for that, it was an immense opportunity to then capitalize on federal investment to the you know the tune of 1.35 billion dollars, which was like whoa. Um, which again, when you look at the price of the High Line, which is like a mile, it's mm-hmm. the ratio is a bit off. But I think that because the um, Because the Army Corps has already, through the Arbor study, kind of stepped outside of what I might refer to as their comfort zone and started to say, okay, well, maybe we can terrace the walls. Well, maybe we can break the walls in areas and then allow the flood to kind of come out into these constructed wetlands on the banks. I think that there's that ability to get them to inch forward just a little bit more. And I think that a place like Los Angeles is the place that we're going to be able to do it because we are... So even though we're, we're behind the times in certain ways, we're so cutting edge in terms of the way that we are progressively um, and socially, of where it's like, oh no, we're, we're going to think about these, these complex issues and we're gonna figure it out in a place like LA.
0: I think that's a very good point. In the same way that, that Sean Woods and the LA branch of state parks has been really progressive and pushed the larger organization in a really interesting direction. I think the LA representatives of Army Corps have taken a certain message back to Washington that has helped. Um, sort of change their feelings. So I think that's very true. But the distinction between the channel itself and the, and, the, and the land along the banks of the river is really crucial because as climate change intensifies, you know, the storm, uh, flood control protection is just going to, you know, be more crucial than ever. And that will probably, even as a more progressive attitude is, is growing at the Army Corps, um, there's going to be a sort of reconnection to that fundamental... Role that um, that the river plays in in stormwater, um, in, in these periods of intense of intense storms. So, um, so should we take some? Do we have time to take some questions? In, okay. So, anyone, if you have any final thoughts, sort of closing thoughts or anything I, we didn't get to before, I want we take to add questions. a point
2: sure. that um, maybe I think that. I love that there are progressive thinkers at the US Army Corps, but what I wonder is, are there progressive citizens? Citizens that could actually embrace a space that is for the formerly homeless or the currently homeless as the city is facing a homeless crisis and there are people who are loud and strong and local nimbys about not wanting those people those people in our in their backyards uh, I don't know if there's a space where you can see a vibrant open space and a vibrant, permanent supportive housing, bridge housing. And I and I say this from working in communities across LA whenever we get invited to design something in the public realm. The first thing anyone will ask whether it be uh, the chamber, the business improvement district, the neighborhood council, the neighbors, they will say, oh, if you design something, can you just make sure there's no homeless people? And so there's always this juxtaposition between successful open space means lack of homelessness uh, and a lack of a homeless population. So I think until us as Angelenos think of our open space as something that is inclusive for everyone, whether you have a house or whether you don't, I think it's actually citizens street like our citizens, Angelinos, who won't actually let that be feasible. But I think mm-hmm. the phasing of a temporary use, one use at a time, is a possibility and probably our best bet. But sorry to be a naysayer, but I, I can't see Angelinos getting behind a successful use of both of those.
0: No, I think that's a really good point. But ultimately the best lesson we could draw from the history of the river would be to think of the space as capable of accommodating several different visions. I mean the the great um, tragedy of the channelization is it turned the river into something that can only do one thing, which is to get stormwater out to sea. It was a total monoculture, the way that freeways operate as well as a kind of engineering expertise, right, that shaped cities in the middle part of the 20th century that sent the message that the river was only for one thing. It was not for public access, it was not for open space, it was just for, in periods of intense rain, getting stormwater out to sea. And I think the lesson to draw from that is that we have to figure out spaces that can do more than one thing, and that goes for the open, not just the channel, but it goes for the open spaces along the river, which is to say, can we begin to have a conversation about accommodating different visions, even when there's some contested space? But as you say, that's politically uh, uh, difficult, particularly in in, in the kind of culture and reception to, some of the homeless projects but perhaps if all of the you come to city. all the
2: community meetings and say you want uh, both, yeah, we can exactly. start to change that.
0: And I think that's really a goal. It's a goal of my office to think about maybe in uh, other smaller sites where we could think about a progression of designs or think about accommodating different programmatic uses in ways that we haven't always done rather than saying, here's the design by the famous architect that will stay forever and um, everyone needs to get behind. I think we want to do everything we can to get away from that point of view. So if you have thoughts, otherwise, we'll maybe take some questions.
1: I'm good. Listen to the podcast. (laughs) Go to the bow tie.
0: So I think we're going to bring a microphone around. Please keep your question brief and in the form of a question, please. (laughs) Hi.
2: How do you address the history that uh, created the channelization and allowed Los Angeles to develop in the history going forward, especially considering that the flood hazard area has been extended and uh, not really talked about in an honest way in the city?
3: Is that one for me, Karen? Is that one for me, Karen? Hopefully we can all <laughs> no, take a stab No, it's a really good
0: question considering what I was just saying about climate change and the intensity of the storms. Yeah.
3: I think that at the heart of it, we're going to have to because going back to Christopher's question earlier about the Army Corps, I th- we, they're not going to let us do anything on those properties without it being in line with, again, flooding and with making sure that that is a, a flood control channel. So what's great about that is that it offers some constraints, but constraints lead to innovative thinking and ways to kind of work with that goal in mind, but working kind of around it and with it. So for instance, I'll I'll bring up some tangible um, examples of that. In the 0- 07 master plan and continuing to roll out from there, we've seen concepts like terracing, where we're actually you know not jeopardizing the amount of flooding that could possibly happen, but we're thinking about how it is that underneath those terraces actually could be these giant chambers that, oh my gosh, save the water and hold on to it instead of just letting it go out into being salt water in the Pacific Ocean. Mm. What a crazy concept, LA. So we have strategies like that, um, that again is looking at, Reforming the uh, concrete corset, as Lewis McAdams calls it, that we have right now, but not um but still always going back to meeting the goal of making sure that communities are are safe. and one of one of the great things I think that we have as an opportunity right now as designers and community residents, is that we get to actually up the bar. Through all of these efforts along the LA River, it's not that we just have to keep maintaining flood storage capacity, and as what you're getting at, if you look at the recent FEMA maps, you see that actually we have built over Los Angeles more than the Army Corps back in the teens were assuming, and so we actually have under-engineered our LA River. Hate to freak everybody out (laughs) out about that. (laughs) Uh, but it actually, even though it looks as though most of the time it just has a trickle, if you look at the land area that it is still servicing, um, it could very easily flow when we ever get rain, if we get rain, hopefully when we get rain. So it's one of those things of where right now when we have public park projects, when we have other opportunities along the river, That's an opportunity for us to right side that ship and for us to increase the flood storage capacity by thinking about these parcels as being constructed wetlands at time. How is it that it could flood in certain areas, but it's because we've designed it to do so and it's then spreading and filling back into the aquifer. So I think that that's kind of, as long as we maintain that ultimate goal, which again, the Army Corps is not going to let us get away with anything but that, I think that we actually have an opportunity to really think about um, capitalizing on the fact that we could in increase the safety of of people and more of the flood storage capacity here.
0: And also to the extent that, uh, I think all of that makes a lot of sense, to the extent that there are various roads not taken, including this one, which I showed at the beginning, there are other roads not taken that were more enlightened. And those of you who don't know the book Eden by Design by Bill Deverell and Greg Heiss, which is about the Olmsted brothers plan from 1929, I really encourage you to find it. It's a document of astonishing foresight, not only in thinking about all of these issues, but also in terms of executing the plan raising money, it has sample legislation, bond language in the back, and the appendices, which themselves are really remarkable in terms of thinking about all these different fronts, how we can have a landscape that's flexible uh, and responsive to these, the kinds of challenges now that we're of course facing with climate change. Another question.
4: Thanks. Um, I guess I was thinking a little bit about how you guys were asking that question of like has there is there an example of a successful project in LA that has attended to the culture the layers mm. and the questions that you guys are trying to answer right now and just kind of struggled to come up with an example of that and so kind of in a meta sense I'm like wondering like with this very inspiring conversation that's happening like we're we're similar conversations happening but for some reason not. The execution was not successful in the past, and if so, um, why not so so anyway from a from kind of a beginner's standpoint mm. uh, from the outside of design world, I'm wondering, is it more a question of like the the questions that we're asking and the goals being kind of evolving, or is it more about like the approaches or ways we answer those questions evolving, like the the solutions? evolving. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if that it's a No, just no, sort no of I meta really like that question that yeah. makes yeah. total sense. I, would say, um, I think it depends
2: on who the developer is. So, when the developer is government, um, it's much more interesting in the sense that there's political will and political need to be able to make as many people happy. Um, but if it's property that's private, uh, where the developer you know wants to get a project built and wants to get it built and still maximize the return, um, that process is very different. So I think I was struggling with, well, what are some good processes, uh, projects? And I get stuck because our process in Los Angeles is, um, just wrong in so many ways, <laughs> and from a uh, and I and think silently,
0: it's silently, silently not. And anything.
2: I and I think it's because our our land use code, our planning code, is outdated. It hasn't been updated since the '40s. We're in the process of updating it now, um, but that development isn't about you know, getting something approved that is what a property is zoned for, but more like how can you kind of maneuver a process that you get a politician, the city, community groups to not sue sue on. So um, I think it happens for everyone. It happens for a private developer who has the best of intentions and a private developer who wants to make as much money as possible. Even it happens for community-based nonprofits that's sole mission is to serve the communities in the area. But maybe to end with a more hopeful note, uh, some projects that I think might be a good example in terms of process um, could be projects that are developed by community development corporations that um, own the property. They develop it for their constituents. And there's a a bunch of organizations like East LA Community Corporation, Little Tokyo Service Center, um, advocacy groups in uh, South LA, Trust South LA. um, Mercado La Paloma is a really good example uh, in South LA. So I think those projects are good examples of a good intent, which is developing a project where the process is inclusive and the product is meant to serve kind of a diverse range of constituents. Um, and I think those are more inspiring than I than I would say like the average development process, which is just so painful because it's. it's individual negotiation, meetings where people come out for hours and who knows if you ever get heard and ultimately it gets decided by the council member. So look at those community-based nonprofits that get to own and develop land. No,
0: totally agree.
2: I would just add
1: from a totally anecdotal, non-design, (laughs) non-professional perspective that I think, um, I don't think something like the Chavez Ravine displacement would happen today. I think we're asking questions, and I think there's real civil, you know, there's civic pressure being put on institutions in ways that I didn't hear or, or know about before, and we're in an era of, of reparations almost about some of the mistakes made in the past, so I have hope about that, but I understand then that also that we don't really have those, those guidelines to, to, to work with. We don't have the, the good models out there.
3: Yeah, and I, I think that it just because I sit in the same boat of where I'm like, oh, I really, I really hope that we're becoming more open-minded and that that really we are a bit different. Um, I think it really also comes down to constraints, and that all throughout history we've all dealt with constraints when doing something like this, and those constraints are still here, even if the the will is growing, um, so I think that with that growing will, the reason that I'm still optimistic is because I hope that we all stick to our guns and know what's right this time, and we say, hell no, we won't go. We're gonna make sure that we actually have this um, and have this kind of multi-layered, multi-functional space and not just say, oh, okay, well, that got value engineered out, so I'm gonna let that, oh, and that council person wanted X, Y, and Z, and so we just ended up you know, giving it to them. I think that we have to make sure that we know what's right and we we stick to that.
0: I think I think it's a really good question. Something I've been thinking about a lot lately. I think those conversations were always happening. I think they were happening. They were not happening in official platforms, and institutions and government agencies were not making space for them. So to your point. Um, And I think we are making some progress. It means that we have to have more difficult and more fraught conversations. So it might not feel like progress because if we're opening up the conversation, um, it's going to be more difficult we're going to be hearing a more disparate collection of voices. And that means coming to a single design solution is just going to be more complicated. But that's the setting we're in. And I think that does represent a kind of progress. I'll give you one example. The debate over the future of the Parker Center, which is the former LAPD headquarters um, just east of City Hall, where I work. an interesting architectural landmark by Welton Beckett. And there was a debate um, really begun before I started my job, when I was in my old job, about the future of that building. Um, And the conversation was broad enough to include a lot of communities of color across the city who said that building is a symbol for them of a very difficult fraught relationship with the LAPD over time, um, uh, and that they saw the building through that lens, whatever architectural historians might have to say about the value of that project. So I was actually encouraged by the kind of nuance that um, a lot of those groups brought to that conversation and the extent to which preservationists are also seeking out those conversations. They often uh, were... In the past, I think guilty of having a very restricted conversation that said, What is the value of this building purely from an architectural point of view? Where does it stand in, in Welton Beckett's body of work, for example? And what we're hearing is a much different, you know, wider collection of voices, people saying this is a symbol of a of a Los Angeles that we would like to leave behind. Um, and I thought that was encouraging in its way. Um, so I do I think these conversations always were happening and then just maybe it was a question of who was listening or making space for them. Maybe one or two. What? How are we on time, Julie? One or two questions? Yeah. yeah. Thank you. These have been really good questions so far, and you've been very concise, so thank you.
3: Hi, everyone. So um, I have a quick question regarding open space, and I think we've been challenged in the city sometimes to have a lot of open space, and then suddenly with G2 and Bowtie, we have 100-plus acres, and I feel this overwhelming sense of like, wow, now we have this huge resource and so i would love to know i mean i think what clock shop's done in the past to kind of give a narrative to Bowtie has been really special and i want to know how each of you kind of represent bowtie standing out against g2 and so it doesn't doesn't just become this generic open space nature park or a high line and how does it stand out as its own space That's that's an interesting one, Friar. Thank you. <laughs> um, it's interesting because I, and I'll be just completely honest, I always think of them as one. And so I want to keep thinking of them as, as one contiguous opportunity. But I do think that within within that, we have the opportunity since it is, and with just G2 and uh, Bowtie, what is that? It's... Tr- it's just, I mean, because it's minus the 40 acres of the um, Rio de los Angeles, but it's, it's still a lot. Some, 60 yeah, something acres, I think. Or something, yeah. 62. You still, that's a lot of space. So you can't just necessarily whitewash it all and, and say this is one design solution for everything. So I still think that within, within thinking about it as one giant contiguous space, as well as thinking about it as two separate ones, you can diversify that space so much that it can kind of read as its own. Um, But given the fact that it, for me, again, when you look at the site's history, And this is different types of history. I look at the ecological history. I mean, Travis Longcore was quoted on one of the podcasts talking about the native plant communities that used to reside in that riparian community. It still is a floodplain, and it feels like that. So that, in a sense, saw no boundary between Bowtie and G2. It was this beautiful native plant community. Then you layer on the history of it being Taylor Yard. I mean, the reason that that G2 is called G2 is because it was parcelized. G1 is the bow tie. And so you still have that same history that happened on both sites. Maybe there was a different building on G2 and a different building um, on, on the bow tie, but it's still, they both have roundhouses and turntables. There's a lot of that kind of similarity. And so I think for me, again, it's less of how can we develop a state park that is, in its sense, this great shining feature, and a city park that then sings in its own way for me, to be honest, it's an opportunity for these two agencies to come together, for, for the city and the state to hold hands and say, we're gonna jump into this unknown, really uncomfortable space together and figure out how it is that, in total, we can make something that's very unique together, that's unique in the context of LA and unique in the context of how it is that we are treating open space across the country. And I think that's where that unique quality comes from, of, of again, not losing any of those layers, of thinking about the partnership of thinking about the site as something that can evolve and adapt over time, um, that I think will be kind of what ends up being the the oddity and kind of the the awesomeness of it.
0: Question in the front.
3: Hello, thanks very much for this wonderfully layered uh, discussion. Um, I was curious um, as to why the Cornfield L.A. State Historic Park didn't come up as an example of uh, what or what not to do um, given how close it is Mm. Um, and also ongoing discussions about community plans there and what you think about that project and in what ways does it or does... does it inform what is happening with G2 and Bowtie?
0: Thoughts about that space? So that's the Cornfield State Park in Chinatown, which did have one of those very ambitious high design uh, um, proposals from uh, Michael Maltzen's office. And uh, and, and we have a, a, di- a different solution which is more efficient in a lot of ways and. Uh, was was um really a product of the of the recession and a change of plan but a lot of people i think prefer it to what was proposed especially it's sort of dollar for dollar but i'm curious
1: I can what just say thoughts? real quick having just spoken with with Sean Woods the superintendent for California State Parks in LA in the LA area that the whole process of engaging the community and coming up with a design for the cornfield, the state historic park, is very much going to inform the bowtie. tie. Um, and, you know, I know the no, California State Parks would like to to really take it a step further with the bow tie and, and engage folks, you know, five, seven years out, which is what this project is is trying to do. Um, but no, I think it's it's probably the one project that most kind of gets at this effort of engaging the community and, and including them in the design process early on. For maybe sure. you can
2: even see the process sure. uh, results in the final product uh, of what the State Park looks like today. Um, I, I, I want to bring it up, but it's hard. I, I grew. I was born in Chinatown in the hospital that's just closed. And, uh, that's OK, I made it, <laughs> I'm still alive. Um, it, it's unfortunate because it is a health center for so many of the, like, the few remaining Chinese immigrant population that's there. But I think what's hard is that I can't separate that successful park, perhaps as a design and a product and a process, from the fact that once that park opened, so many of the properties right across the street has changed, has developed. And it has ripple effects to actually the broader Chinatown community as it's thinking about uh, development and the long-time renters there that many of them are getting displaced. So for me, even though it's not directly the fault of State Park, and it's a great park that I enjoy, um, the reality is that that impact, even though it's a regional state park, there is a regional implication to the neighborhood of Chinatown and the residents and the businesses and what actually that means. And I think I didn't raise it because I was like, well, it is a great process, but it's actually embedded next to a neighborhood that is also going through radical change. But I think, hands down, Sean Sean Woods did an amazing job of actually continuing a very thoughtful engagement process, having interim uses, um, and really telling the story of the place around the area and incorporating it into the park today.
0: I think, I think that's a really good point, and I just had a quick thought about that. I think, I think it's um, too often we lay the pressures of all of these other crises, housing in particular, at the feet of open space projects, um, and it really should not be the responsibility of park designers or a state park board, To even though we applaud them when they do think in a wider sense to uh, solve the ho- housing crisis, to put it bluntly. Uh, and I think it, what it surfaces, though, is a larger fracture in, in, in how we think about housing policy, for example, or questions of gentrification and displacement, which really should be part of a broader political conversation about choices that we're making and trade-offs, and sometimes the, those questions really fall on an open space project, because you know they sort of bear the brunt of all of those those tensions when that's really, a, that's really a set of issues about housing for example and, 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 and displacement. Um, so I think on the one hand those projects absolutely need to attend to those questions as much as they're able, but also we need to make sure we remind everyone that it's part of a larger framework that um, really should start with the difficult conversation about housing and housing production.
2: Open space and affordable housing collaborative, which is really meant to address that issue of how can uh, both of these amenities be developed uh, not at the expense of one another but in collaboration. Um, so, I encourage folks to, to look into that as a potential model to keep an eye out for.
0: Great. Um, so, yes, with that, um, first of all, I want to thank Julia and Clockshaw for hosting. I want to thank you. <laughs> um, thank uh, Rex and Bear for a really fantastic, super thoughtful, very layered project um, that you should listen to if you haven't. Uh, and please join me in thanking the panelists as well. And thanks to all of you for being here.